0: I think that just proves a point though, isn't it? That when the church, Christ's bride, truly understands who she is in him and starts living in the light of that, she's really beautiful, wouldn't you say? It's amazing what Christ can do through his people. And again, that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is the second of two sermons we're going to be doing on the picture of of, uh, the church as Christ's bride. And David... Gave us a great overview last week of our understanding where that picture comes from biblically. He took us through the Old Testament to show us God's relationship with the nation of Israel. He was their husband is the word he uses. And uh, and today I'm going to be taking us through the New Testament and see how in the light of that how we as the church fulfill the role as Christ's bride. But I do understand sometimes the picture of the church as Christ's bride can be a little bit of an elusive or an abstract picture. I mean it's just this you see this woman standing in white and how do you relate that to a body of people around the world who love Jesus? For some guys, they can find it a bit girly. So like David was saying last week, about according to the Bible, women are sons and men are brides. And it's a bit kind of like, especially for men outside the church, they start hearing that kind of picture. They think we're a bunch of wifters, and there's something not quite right going on. But actually, it's a truly, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful image from the Bible. Some people are worried about risking drawing too much from such an analogy but the truth is it is a biblical truth and the reality is this Christ himself calls himself the bridegroom Christ himself calls us the bride, therefore it's a truth that we need to understand and we need to embrace and it proves to be one actually that it's got strong implications for each one of us in this room, whether you love Jesus or whether you don't, this image has strong implications as I trust you'll see but uh Just as we move on, uh, David last week used a passage from the New Testament to springboard into the Old Testament. I'm going to do it the other way around. I'm going to use a passage from the Old Testament to springboard us into the New. But I just need to explain this before we move on. Our understanding of marriage in the UK in 2010 doesn't really help with this image. We, we We need to understand when Jesus was talking about himself as bridegroom and his people as the bride, he was talking to people who got what he meant. And I'm going to help you understand who he's talking to and what they understood. You see, our understanding of marriage in this day and age is, is particularly in the Western culture, let's say, it builds up to a big day. You get engaged and then you plan your date, you save your money. The woman goes off and chooses a flouncy dress with a bridesmaid or maids of honour and that sort of stuff and the bloke just gets a suit. It's easy. <laughs> We're a bit different. But uh, it's building up to this big day. And when that day finally comes, the big celebration and the big ceremony... As of that moment, you are married. So this is why we can get a bit confused when we talk about, up in Revelation, talks about the big wedding feast and the big wedding days come, and then we're thinking, well, does that mean we're not married to him yet? Does it mean we're only engaged? What does that really mean? We're using Western understanding. So I'm going to take you through what Jesus meant and the people who were receiving it at the time, what they understood by it, and the implications out of that. So don't get confused. It does make sense, trust me. Hopefully by 12 o'clock, just after. You'll see what I mean. So David last week, he showed us that God called himself Israel's husband. And he showed us in Isaiah 54, where God actually says, through the prophet Isaiah, your maker is your husband. He doesn't say he is like your husband. He said, is your husband. And this image of mankind being either in or out of marriage with God, or in it, but cheating on him, being unfaithful, comes out all the way through the Old Testament, and it continues right into the New Testament, where just as God called himself husband, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. That's like the passage that David launched us off with last week, John chapter 3. Jesus quite categorically calls himself the bridegroom. And again in Matthew 9 and Matthew 25, Jesus does it again, just in case we didn't get it. He says, I am the bridegroom. Paul continues this theme in, uh, when he writes to the church in Ephesus. And it's a passage we'll look at later for a different reason, but in Ephesians chapter 5, he exalts earthly husbands to treat their wives just as Christ treats his church, to love them as the head of the family, but also in, in, as much as giving up their lives for them if necessary. He relates this because he understands it's more than just a picture, it's a truth. And then, of course, as you proceed through the New Testament, you reach Revelation 19, which is one of the other passages we're going to look at at the beginning, the big climax, the great big wedding party. When there's a great celebration when the groom returns for his bride. Before we hit that party, there's one more New Testament passage, Matthew 26, that I'd like us to look at in a sec. Which, it will be a familiar passage to most, if not all of you, and you'll wonder what on earth it's got to do with marriage. But bear with me. Bear with me. Before we look at that, let's just look at the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. If you turn with me to Jeremiah 31, just for a moment, just to set the scene... (coughs) That's so why you're turning. Let's just recap. If you understand marriage is about the relationship between God and man. Before the fall, when God created all things, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they are in perfect marital relationship with God. There was absolute commitment, trust, unity, absolute fidelity between them. It was the perfect marriage. Then came the fall. Basically, that is adultery. Man and woman, Adam and Eve their desires before him, they were unfaithful to him in that marital covenant they were flirting and dancing with their own desires with their own selfish ways and as soon as we put anything above God in our life, be it ourselves, others things, whatever it is any kind of desire, any selfish desire is sin at the end of the day and it breaks that marriage covenant because we will be unfaithful to him it's exactly that, it's exactly adultery in a marital relationship So God made a covenant with the people of Israel. As his bride, he is their husband. He had eyes for them in the crowd, if you like. But it wasn't just for their benefit, it was was for the blessing of the rest of the nations. It was for the benefit of the nations, it was to draw others in, and it was also a foreshadowing of what was to come. Again, he had a covenant relationship. We called it the Old Covenant, didn't we? Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. It was a foreshadowing of what's to come. It was a marital covenant with Israel, his bride. He made great promises to them. And then what happened? Jeremiah 31, look at verse 32. We are going to read the verse before in just a second. Jeremiah 31, 32, halfway through, he says, uh, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband. We are going to read it in context in a minute, but he says, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So again, he's made this marital covenant with the people of Israel and they've broken it, they've been unfaithful to them, they've committed adultery. So we have a new marriage contract available to us through Christ, you see. This was just a foreshadowing of what's to come. This was the old covenant. It wasn't simply for its own as a means to an end. It was about foreshadowing the greater thing to come, the greater new marriage proposal that comes through Christ. How does that work? Skip back one verse, verse thirty one. Here it is all in context. Thirty one to thirty three, we're going to read. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Remember, this is 500 years before Jesus turned up. He said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's the new covenant promised 500 years before Jesus turned up and fulfilled that in his amazing work, in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. Now through Christ, we actually have that unhindered perfect marriage available once again with God. We are imperfect. God is completely perfect. We are anything but. There's a great abyss between us because of that. He's a holy God and we are set apart by our sin. He is set apart by his holiness. Nothing can bridge that gap but Jesus. And he did that. And again, through Christ, his work on the cross, we are able to have that perfect marital union with God. Once again, there's the new covenant. Okay, so far? Here we go. Matthew 26. You're going to wonder what on earth this has got to do with marriage, but all will become clear in just a couple of minutes. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. What's my page, there it is. Familiar passage about the Last Supper. This a passage we often read when we share communion together. Jesus at the Last Supper shortly before his arrest, he took time to give these these guys around him in the church subsequently a means to remember his work on the cross, and that's what we do. But this actually bears relevance to the marriage picture. Verse twenty-six he says while they he says while they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant and some manuscripts add in the word new just to make sure you get it. Okay? This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So just to get the main points out of there, he says, this is my covenant with you. This is my promise. If you accept it, drink from this cup. And I won't drink of it again with you, until I'm with you again in my Father's kingdom. I will not touch it until then. Remember those points. Because like I said, our West, Western understanding of marriage doesn't work in this. The people who were hearing it at the time got it because they understood ancient, to them current, Jewish marriage traditions. You See, Jewish weddings are in two parts. These days, modern Jewish weddings tend to be both parts all in one day. There's a betrothal and the big wedding celebration or the feast. They tend to do it all in one go, but it comes in two parts in the ceremony. Back in ancient times, in Christ's time, it was literally two parts set apart. The betrothal was as good as declaring them as man and wife. It's not our understanding of engagement where you slip a ring on and you make a promise and you make a date for 18 months' time but before then you might have split up, thrown the ring at each other or whatever, had a bit of an argument. You're not actually married until the big day. Back then, the engagement was as good as declaring you as man and wife. Unfaithfulness within an engagement was considered adultery. If you wanted to break off this engagement, this betrothal, You had to go through divorce proceedings. They were considered as man and wife. They didn't live together as man and wife yet, but they were considered as man and wife. See, when a Jewish man, this is when it all comes together, when a Jewish man makes that betrothal, he presents the woman with what's known as a kituva. I've no idea if I pronounce that right. But it's a written covenant. It's the promise he's making. It protects her rights. It's those written vows, down on paper, Jewish couples these days, they have it up on their wall. It's pride of place in their house. It's a beautiful scroll. It's beautifully decorated. And the vows are written down. And those are the vows we made on our wedding day, at our, our betrothal. And the man would present this written promise, written promise, to his bride to be. says, This is my promise. Do you accept? If she accepts, she drinks from a cup of wine that he's poured out for her. That's her acceptance. it's better because then the groom then says I will not drink from this cup until we're reunited ah now it's all clicking in the place you see Christ was making his betrothal promise he's making it quite clear his commitment to us why did the groom not drink again of that cup when he, made, when, when he offered it to her and her drinking it was her acceptance because if he drank symbolically if he drank from that cup again without her he's proposing to someone else There's an absolute vow and he says, I'm not touching that cup again until we're together. Why did he go away? Because he went away to prepare a place for them to live. Sometimes he go away to study also, but quite often, it could be up to a year or so. They're considered man and wife, but he goes away to prepare a home for them. And he says, I'm not going to drink again of that cup until we're reunited. And then one day, there's a big celebration, there's a big ceremonial way of doing it, and he comes back to retrieve his bride and take her home to be with him. That's the big feast. Now is it all falling into place? See, betrothal for us is an absolute promise by Christ that he asks for our hand for eternity. It's there for us to choose, to accept. And if you do, it is absolute security made possible by him. If you're engaged to Christ, you're married to Christ. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And what's even better is he didn't just humble himself to get down on one knee and propose. As Julie was reading earlier from Philippians 2, he humbled himself to death on a cross. He loves you that much. He gave his life for you. Rose again 30 odd hours later. Say, I love you this much Will you marry me. And now he's gone away to prepare a place for us to live with him forever. John 14, verses 2 to 3 says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's preparing that home for us now. We're in between the betrothal and the feast. At the last supper, Christ confirmed his betrothal. He said, here's the cup. Will you marry me? And once he'd finished his work on the cross, he went to prepare that home. One day he will return to take those who said yes, his bride to go back home to be with him forever he's alive and he will return so there we are we're between betrothal we are married and the great wedding day when it comes to take us home to be with him the great wedding feast before we look at the feast some questions about the betrothal are you betrothed to Christ we have to ask ourselves have you accepted that are you only dating him you try and spend a bit of time with him but you're not really committed are you flirting with him I don't mean that flippantly do you just come along on Sundays maybe switch on God TV but there's no commitment there you haven't promised him or you haven't accepted his vows just don't miss out on the great romance that is available to you right here right now don't miss this opportunity <coughs> but equally important If you are betrothed to him, are you flirting with another? Do you flirt with the world, with things around you? Do things distract you in such a way that you lose your heart for him, you lose your first love for him? He's your husband and we need to honour him as such. So my marriage in 1994 wasn't just a promise in 1994. It's been a promise every day since. To not look at another woman. To serve Jenny to keep thinking of her, to want to spend more time with her, to get to know her more. It's a daily promise. It's not just something I did back then, whatever else I've done since doesn't matter because I'm married to her. It's not just the wedding that matters, it's the marriage that matters as well, isn't it? It's the same here. If you are betrothed to him, you are secure in him forever. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise is you are as good as married to him. You are married to him we need to respect him, we need to be faithful to him and sometimes we're not enjoy the marriage remember Tom a few weeks ago was talking to us about enjoying the journey not just the destination that's not just about doing church and enjoying being together it's enjoying him as well see mankind loves exploring the the depths of the oceans and the mysteries of the universe we're never going to get to the bottom of those but it doesn't stop us exploring does it We love getting to know more and more and more about those mysteries around us. And the same with Christ. Same with me and Jenny. When we were dating, I thought I knew her. Then I married her. Now I really know her. And I still don't know her, for all her faults, but for all my faults as well. But I still don't know her as well as I will, God willing, if we're still in our 80s together, for example. I love getting to know her more. I love making her laugh and finding new ways of making her laugh. I love that. And the same with Christ. We need to enjoy getting to know him more and more. It's not just about a wedding, it's about a marriage. So that's the betrothal. Exactly the same as married, secure in him, looking forward to the great feast, the great wedding day. Revelation 19. Here we go. The big party. Curiously enough, this passage doesn't detail much about the party itself. And I guess that's the point. It doesn't tell us if it was a buffet or silver service. It doesn't tell us if was a big, a big table. How many people are there? Lots. What's important is what it tells us. I'm going to read through this passage just a sec, but there's two points that I'd like to bring out. One point for those that don't know him, and one point from this passage for those that do. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. It says, Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. First point I'd just like to bring out, just very, very briefly. I'm not going to dwell on it too long. It's what I've already asked. I said, Are you betrothed to Christ? Verse 9, it says, Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The only people that are there Are those that are invited. This is very important. Who's invited? It's the bride at the end of the day. In all her plurality, every single person who has said yes to him and accepted him into their life. No one gets in as a guest. We need to be so careful of this. You don't get into this wedding feast as a guest, you get in as the bride. You don't get in as a friend of the church. You don't get to go to this wedding ceremony as a distant relative. You get a random invite you no one's ever seen for 20 years. You don't get in because you're related to someone who's Christian. You don't get in because you grew up in a Christian family. You don't get in because you grew up in a supposed Christian country. You don't get in because you read your Bible. You don't get in because you come to church on Sundays. Only get in if you're the bride. You're either in or you're out. You're invited to accept his marriage proposal and the rest is up to you, I'd say. Just be careful. And then the second point, for those of us that do love him, that are his. Second half of verse 7 into verse 8. It says, For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She hasn't been dressed, she's made herself ready. No. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So she's dressed in herself, fine linen that she's been given. And then it explains fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. What are those righteous acts? Didn't Isaiah sixty four six say that our righteous deeds are like bloody rags to God? They're offensive to him? So what are these righteous acts? The difference is, righteous acts that God was speaking through Isaiah to the people, saying, Your righteous acts that you're trying to do on your own strength, trying to bend my arm, trying to make me owe you something, are hugely offensive to me. These righteous acts were given to the bride to perform. Finally, in Brighton and clean, was given her to wear, which stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Just turn to that Ephesians five passage that I mentioned about Paul talking to husbands. Explains a little bit more of that. Ephesians five, twenty-five. Just proves the point that it's all about him. Remember, these righteous deeds are given to us. It says husband sorry, verse twenty-five of Ephesians five it says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself radiant. So he's made it possible. So these righteous acts are given by Christ Our righteous deeds, they're co-labouring. We're meant to co-labor. We're not meant to just write and betroth to him now, I can put my feet up and not worry about it. We have a role to play in the church becoming increasingly radiant. You saw that video. That's the church becoming increasingly radiant around the world. It's a responsibility. We need to work out our salvation. We need to grow for him and in him. But it's only made possible in the first place by his cleansing and the opportunities and gifts that he gives us to dress ourselves in. We all have opportunities around us, we don't have to sit down and pray for a miraculous opportunity once a day. The opportunities are around you all the time to share Christ with people. Sometimes miraculous divine opportunities do happen. But sometimes we just need to open our eyes, don't we? They're there, neighbours next door, people in the street, people at work, members of the family. Opportunities are all around us. There's a need always, around us. I was talking to Roger Gale yesterday about the needs of Heron Bay. There are needs all around us. That at some point when we're able to, with the giftings that God has given us, we need to meet. See note, this gown of fine linen is provided by him and for him. Queen Esther, you read in the Old Testament, when she was preparing herself to to be presented to King Xerxes, which was when he chose her as his wife, she was given the things she needed for her adornment. She didn't bring her own makeup bags and some fancy outfits. She managed to buy in the next sale. The cosmetics and the perfumes were given to her, and in fact, the words that were used was "was anything she wanted." He provided for her to be presented to him, to him as beautiful and radiant. That's exactly what's happening here. It's not our righteous acts, on our strength, with our clever ideas, in order to win. God's heart, because that's offensive. It's about the opportunities and the gifts that he has given us to become increasingly radiant for him. But it's not just where those acts come from. Ultimately in that it's about our motivation, isn't it? Who are you doing it for? See, on the morning of 16th of July, 1994, I woke up to gaze into the eyes of my best friend James. Not my wife. That was later on. You see, he was my best man. He was staying over on the day of my wedding. It was a one-bedroom flat, not enough room for other alternative sleeping arrangements. We just shared a double bed. We were secure in our Christian straightness. We were fine. But our preparation for the big day, we were blokes, all right? Our preparation for the day was having a meal the night before, staying up late to watch a funky vampire film, went to sleep. It's quite a good film. Went to sleep, got up in the next morning, had some breakfast, quickly rushed off to the suit shop because he realised the top hats didn't fit. Last minute, you know, blokes. Quickly had another bite to eat. Cousin turned up with the car, took us to the church. That was our preparation. We're men, <coughs> all right? Jenny, during all that time, was adorning herself, making herself beautiful. Her hair, her makeup, her nails, the dress she'd chosen. She was stunning. I mean, she, she still is. I know I'm biased, but she is. She's beautiful. On that day she was just, she truly was radiant. When I turned around to see her walking down that aisle, I am sure even thought the same. Not about Jenny, but about Sarah. <laughs> she was beautiful. Who had she adorned herself for? Was it so she feels better about herself? Was it for the other people in the room? Or was it for me? It was literally for me. She'd even gone to the effort of choosing a dress that complimented me. She didn't go for a big fancy Disney princess meringue thing because she knew that wouldn't honour me and my physique. She went for a slim fitting dress that honoured her groom. That's a true story, you ask her. She worked it all out and I love her for it. She was adorning herself for me. Who are you adorning yourself for? Who are you trying to change for? Are you trying to change for yourself so you like yourself more? It's a danger, isn't it? Perhaps even more of a danger, are you trying to change yourself so other people like you more? Approval is a big thing we struggle with. You're approved in Him. You don't need to struggle for man's liking, for people to like you more. But we do it sometimes, don't we? Trying to be a better person so other people like you more. Or are you truly doing it for Christ? Are you genuinely trying to grow? to change for him who are you trying to please or are you flirting elsewhere so even it's not just on an individual basis, even corporately why do we as Beacon want to grow, why do we believe we will is it so, when we were talking about not being in this venue in a couple of years time perhaps, because we believe God has that kind of promise for us but if we're doing that and the motivation in that is it so we look good or so people talk about Beacon in a good light, or so they think John and David are great, we need to ask them for the formula to how they did it and aren't they wonderful leaders? It's the wrong motivation and we should just stop it, give up. That's going to be the motivation, then don't do it at all. But if genuinely our motivation in that is to see Christ's name glorified in this town and to have more hands on deck, to be able to resource more things, to make a difference in Herm Bay for him, There's the motivation, because it's all for him, for our groom. We have to be careful, though, don't we? Do you say certain things so people like you more, even if you don't agree with the things you're saying? Do you join in gossip in the workplace because everybody likes you more for joining in rather than standing up for it, standing up against it? It's a danger, isn't it, approval? See, if we aim to please our groom, Jesus, and no one else, our character grows we're fulfilled in living out his purposes, his righteous deeds, that he's prepared for us and given us to do. And in doing that, we put away childish notions and childish (coughs) hopes that other people will like us. Because if I dressed a certain way, so Jenny's friends liked me more, if I dressed a certain way so her friends fancied me, if I started flirting with another girl, if I spent more time thinking about a girl than I do think about Jenny, is that honouring my wife? Of course it isn't. It's the same principle here. What's our motivation? Who are we honouring? Who are you trying to please? Yourself, others or Christ? So just to conclude, the wedding is in two separate parts. As Jesus described it, in the times he was living in, and so we can understand it, that our betrothal with him means we are married. We're not just looking forward to a big day when we will be married. You are securing him now. Once saved, always saved. Just be sure, just be sure you, you are saved in the first place. Have you accepted his proposal? Have you said yes to him? Really? Are you only dating him or maybe flirting with him? It's dangerous. Don't fool yourself. Convince yourself into thinking you're okay. He'll never let you down. He will never leave you. He is 100% faithful. Just say yes. Yes. (laughs) Hallelujah. Good girl. That's it. Have you said yes, but you're being unfaithful? Has your heart wandered elsewhere? And are you secure in his absolute betrothal, in his promise? Are you secure in that? God said to the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 1, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. And God says it again to us in Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a promise. Be secure in the fact that if you're betrothed to him, it will always be so. You're his forever. And then the feast. Who are you adorning yourself for? What's your motivation in that? And are those deeds you're doing? Are they genuinely righteous deeds that he's given you, opportunities and gifts that he's given you, and the right motivations in that? Or are they just legalistic works? You're doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you should. You're doing it because you think it makes God love you more. Motivation's wrong, isn't it? Well we're on the subject. Ladies, don't think that your husband will fulfil you. Never believe that. Never believe that if you're not married that Mr Wright dreams of Mr Wright will ever fulfil you. No man will ever fulfil you. And then the same principle for all of us. Nothing will fulfil you in this life. Be it the next big car, great big house, bigger wage slip, winning lottery ticket, having children, getting married. That will never fulfil you. Why? Because they're things and they're people. Things will always let you down or fade away. People will always let you down or fade away. Only Jesus, the living God, will ever fulfil you. And his marriage proposal is on the table for you right now if you haven't already. Just embrace the truth of him as the groom who has promised absolute eternal security, eternal love to his bride, and he stops at nothing to keep his promise. He more than got down on one knee, he gave his life for us on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserved for our sin, for your sin. And he rose again and he says, despite your past, despite what you've done, I've made a way. Do you accept? So right here, right now is the great romance. is available to all of us. Just say yes. Just say yes. It be good to pray. Jesus, our perfect groom. Lord, so often our eyes slip from you. Our gaze wanders elsewhere. Our gaze wanders to the world. Our gaze wanders to ourselves. And we've dropped the ball yet again. Lord, we thank you that you're 100% faithful to us even when we're not. But Lord, when your word says fix our eyes on you, we can do that for a while and so often our eyes slip away but Lord, let us keep our eyes fixed on you. It's all about you, it's for you, it's through you. You provide the means for us to live for you through your Holy Spirit and through the opportunities and gifts that you give us. But Lord, let us never lose sight of that fact. <coughs> while our eyes are closed, I do, I do think it's important if God said anything to you about whether you've ever given a new life to him before or not and you want to make that commitment or if you have done but you've been unfaithful in any way you've you've let your eyes wander elsewhere you've lost your first love for him maybe just while our eyes are closed maybe just raise your hand no one else is looking just an act before him just to say yes I mean this I want to make it. I want to accept your proposal I want to renew my vows if you feel that so you put your hand up now if you want to come and find me afterwards or John or David, for prayer for anything if you have trouble with find his security in his betrothal if you don't have absolute confidence that you are his come and, come and speak to us, come and find us Lord as we just fellowship together now and as we go from this place Lord let us never lose sight of the fact that once yours, always yours engagement is just not something that breaks off but it's your understanding of betrothal that once and forever And Lord, let us never let our eyes wander to the world again, to ourselves again, to our sinful desires again. Lord, help us. We're human and we're weak and we need your help. But Lord, let us keep our eyes fixed on you, our beautiful groom, looking forward to the great day when you take us home to be with you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, come and find one of us if you want some prayer. You might enjoy teas and coffees.